Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come today, we are so very mindful of your presence here with us, so thankful for that truth, for that reality. God, we pray that as we open your word now, that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, that you would encourage us, direct us, guide us, Lord, uh, correct us in those places where we need correction. Lord, we pray for just uh, an application of your word to our hearts and minds today, to our lives, that we would leave here this morning different than when we came in, not by any work of man, but by your will, by your uh, transformation, by your power. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been basically telling the story, talking about the reality, the relationship of what it means to have God with us. We started with the preexistent. We started with, with Christ before creation and how even in that environment, in that reality, Christ had us on his mind, that God had us uh, in his thoughts and how he had prepared and he had planned for uh, the crucifixion for the resurrection, how he had planned and how he prepared for uh, meeting us, connecting with us, transforming us. Then we moved on to Jesus as the promised one, how the Old Testament prophets revealed the nature of who Jesus was, and, and not just in terms of history beforehand, history carried out, but in terms of God's uh, plan for salvation history, how he worked through each of those environments, through each of those situations, each of those prophets, and their time frame, and their circumstances, and what was happening in, in their reality to foretell one who would come, who was not just a prediction, but a promise of something greater, a, a relational concept uh, of how God would indeed be with us. And then last week, we looked at Christ as the personal one, the one who meets us on a personal level, the one who is, uh, while fully God, also fully human. And as a one who is fully human, he has, uh, he connects with us. He has a, a history, if you will, uh, within humanity, and he responds in his coming, in his salvific work, to to change, to transform that history, uh, to bring transformation to broken situations and broken circumstances. And all of these revelations, all of these concepts, these ideas of Christ, the preexistent one, the promised one, the personal one. They all come to a head in our passage today, Revelation chapter 21. And in this passage, we see him as the peerless one. We see him as the ultimate expression of all our hopes, all our dreams, all of our uh, anticipated outcomes. Christ is at the center of that. This past week uh, on Monday, uh, I drove back to the Metroplex to, to perform a memorial service for uh, a, a man who had been in a member of the church I previously pastored. Um, normally, I wouldn't do that. Normally, I leave that to the present pastor. I just believe that's the more important way to go um, to create those relationships. But me and this particular uh, individual had a, a very special relationship. He was uh, very inquisitive, very seeking, very... Um, driven by the whole idea of knowledge, and so he and I just kind of connected. That's just kind of, we're both in that kind of 
mindset, and he was just a couple years older than me. And so when he passed and his wife called me and she said, you know, Alan really would not want anybody but you to do the service. And would you be willing to come up? I was, I was honored and humbled, but I was also hit by that. You know, to have somebody that I was close to, somebody I had mentored, somebody who had walked uh, a journey with me over the course of 10 years, um, pass away, it was, it was hard. Um, but his wife said that he had two passages in particular that he wanted me to, to focus on, the preacher to, to focus on, and this was one of them. The Revelation 21 passage was one of them. It was one that that he had uh, that God had used actually to to bring him to bring Alan to salvation many years before. It was one that God had had communicated to him um, the truths of how this world, this life, is passing away, and there is something greater to hope for, to to look forward to. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to see the connections, not just to the future, not just what's going to come, but the connections to where we are right now and what we're experiencing right now and how we might find life and liberty and hope and encouragement and peace, even in the midst of what's been a very difficult year. I don't, I wouldn't begin to say this is one of the most difficult years in history because being a historian, I know that's not the case. I know there have been much more difficult years in, in human history. But at least in our environment, in, in the last couple decades, uh, this has been one of, one of the ones right there at the top as far as difficulties in terms of just dealing with so many different things, not just COVID, but, but so many different things have, have come uh, our way. Um, and so I think it's good uh, at the end of this year, as we look forward to the next one, not knowing what it's going to hold, um, to, to, to see that, that we know who holds the future. And we know that he has a plan and a purpose and that he is still very much on his throne. And, and we can find hope in that. So look with me, if you will, Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will dwell, be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, down for, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Quite a powerful passage. 
quite a vivid image of the new world to come. This is this is not a picture of heaven. This is a picture of the new creation, the, the one that accompanies the resurrection of the saints. This is a, a picture of eternity and, and what we will enjoy, what we will encounter in that new environment. And as we see this revealed to us, as we see this related to us, John is trying to communicate some important truths that are not just about, as I said earlier, not just about that future, but about the right now. He, he, he notes as he, as he wraps up there uh, toward the end, the one who conquers will have this heritage. The, another way to translate that sentence is the one who overcomes, the one who survives, the one who, who lasts, but not just survival in terms of getting by, the one who literally conquers life situations and circumstances, who, who holds on to Christ, the one who, who faces the difficulties and the hardship sometimes the persecutions, and faces those with a hope and with a joy and with a peace, not because of who he or she is, but because of who Christ is dwelling within them. Though This is our inheritance. This is our heritage. This is what we have to look forward to. But it empowers us right now in this situation, in this circumstance, in these times. How is it that John hopes to encourage us well, I believe it's wrapped up in two uh, statements. And those two statements are set apart by the word, Behold. Whenever you encounter the word, Behold, in Scripture, you're encountering a, a monumental moment, a significant shift. Sometimes it's a surprise. Sometimes it's, it's um, you know, uh, kind of expected. But it's always, whenever Behold is used, it's always a significant important moment in the narrative, in the unfolding of the story. And, and the writer always wants you, or the speaker always wants you to stop whatever it is you're doing and pay attention. Behold, uh, in, our, in our parlance and in our way of speaking might be, listen up, might be the way we would write it, how we would translate it today uh, if we were the ones who were speaking. Pay attention, y'all. That's what he's trying to say here when behold is said. And there's two beholds in this phrase, in this, in this paragraph. And, and I think those two beholds establish for us what the emphasis is in this revelation, in this communication. The first, the first behold is the dwelling place of God is with man. That's in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Pay attention. God is dwelling in the midst of humanity is what John wants us to see. It's what, what God is trying to communicate here. This is the ultimate final expression of God with us. The ultimate expression of Emmanuel. That God will dwell in the midst of his people. And you see that played out in, in several different ways as, as this account is, is relayed to us. The first thing the passage tells us is that there is a, 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 an end to the separation. And you see that in particular when it says uh, at the end of verse 1, and the sea was no more. Now that might seem like a strange statement. Why on earth 
as you're sitting here and you're looking at the, this, this new creation, this new environment, why on earth would, of all the things John could say about it, of all the things John could relay about it, why on earth would he say, and there wasn't a sea anymore either? Why is that so significant? Well, I think there's, there's two reasons that we see from the, from the biblical revelation from, from earlier periods. One is the fact that throughout the Bible, beginning in Genesis and continuing on through even into the Gospels and uh, where Jesus is peace be still and so forth, is that the sea was a picture of, of the ultimate fear of humanity, okay? of chaos, of struggle. In, in their environment, in, in their world, in their worldview, to get on a boat and to travel into the sea was to take your life into your own hands. Every time someone got into a ship in their era, in their time, there was a very real chance that ship would not arrive at where it was going to. Okay, This was long before iron and steel and all those other things strengthened the boats and the engineering really developed into um, something where uh, you can count on kind of most of the time at least getting where you were wanting to go. For them, quite often, they'd see their loved ones, they'd see their belongings, they'd see whatever put on a ship, and they were gone because a storm would come up Something would happen. And so the sea became a picture of chaos. It became a, a picture, really, of evil throughout the Bible. You, you see this image. It, it's played out in Genesis 1. It's played out um, in Exodus 15 with, with Israel leaving Egypt. It's played out in many of the Psalms where you have the raging seas, and God steps in and he says, what? Just stop. And, and, and he separates, or he divides it, or he calms it, or he stops it. And, and, and that's just an expression, it's a communication of God's ultimate power in their mindset, because this, this great evil, this great force, this great chaos in their world, God controlled. You see it in the Gospels, where the, where the apostles are frightened, because the sea has become a, a raging sea, and, and Jesus steps up and he says, peace be still. And the waters are immediately calm. You see this, this revelation over and over again of sea as this evil. And so when John says, and the sea was no more, he's saying what? He's saying those things that frighten you, those things that terrify you, the evil that exists is gone. Now it's never been a threat to God, never been a challenge to God. God's always been controlled in every environment where you see the sea and God interacting, God wins. It's not even close. But in this new world, in this new creation, we won't have that opposing force. We won't have that struggle for us. We will have peace. We will have presence. Why? Because God's with us. So that, that's, the, that's the first truth about the sea and its absence that, that's here. The second one, I believe, goes back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, as John arrives in heaven with, in this vision, as he's seen what's there, as he's seen that environment, the current status of, of things, he says there is a crystal sea between the throne of God and his people. Okay? You have the people, you have the crystal sea, you have the throne of God. Right? And, and 
And the crystal part's important because what? It communicates again, no chaos. It, it's a peaceful sea. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's still. Okay, that's what the crystal's going for in that image. But the fact remains that what? There's still that separation between God and His people. So here at the end, in the new creation, as things are, are finally unfolding, as, as eternity's beginning, man has been resurrected, those who are Christ have been resurrected, and so forth, there's no more sea, which means what? There's no more separation between God and His people. And so the image is, is what? The image is a very strong, bold statement of God with us. God with us in the sense that evil itself has been eradicated, God with us in the sense that we have a fellowship with Him, we have a connection with Him, we have a relationship with Him that's unlike anything we could currently even imagine. Because right now, no matter how great your relationship with, with God is, no matter how wonderful it is, no matter how significant a part of your life it is, it will pale in comparison to what it will ultimately be in that new environment, in that new situation. Because in that new situation, all of our pride, all of our sin, all of our guilt and shame and agony, it will all be gone. And we'll be able to enjoy God's presence in a way unlike anything we could possibly appreciate now. A second part of God dwelling with man that is revealed here is, besides the end to suffering, is end to separation is the end to suffering. This passage here in Revelation 21 has brought uh, a lot of hope to a lot of people over the years. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's a direct consequence. It's a direct revelation of God dwelling with man, that he is present there, that he is he, he's there uh, in, in connecting with humanity. He's there in connecting with those who are His in a very personal, intimate way. The sorrows, the griefs of the past have been washed away, have been removed, and He is there present, helping us, encouraging us in, in very uh, clear, tangible ways. I long for that kind of connection. I long for that moment. I long for that experience. And what John is, is getting at here is that all of our suffering, all of our sorrow that we presently encounter grows out of what? It grows out of our rebellion. It grows out of the fact that Adam and Eve said, I can do things better than you can. I'm going to eat of this fruit, and in eating of this fruit, I'm going to declare that I can decide for myself what is beneficial and what's harmful. And ever since then, every sin we've committed, every, every act of treason we've expressed has grown out of that essential mindset that we can do better providing for ourselves than God can. Think about it. Every sin you commit ultimately boils down to, yeah, I know that's what you said, God, but I think I can do better. I think this way is better for me. 
And so with that in mind, that is what has resulted in suffering. Why? Because we can't do better. No matter how arrogant or cocky or whatever it is we think we are, whatever it is we think we're capable of and humanity is, is able to rise to in our minds and our thoughts, we cannot do better than God's provision for us. We cannot do better than God's care for us. We cannot do better than God's transformation of us. Christianity is not about self-help. Christianity is about God help. It's about us realizing and recognizing we can't do it on our own. We need His grace. We need His help. We need His deliverance. And what this revelation communicates to us is that there will be a day that as we're dwelling with God, we're what? We're once again under His complete provision and care. We're once again underneath His, what He gives us and what He grants us rather than what we would seek for ourselves. And in, in that, the suffering, the sorrow, the pain, the grief departs. The third thing about God dwelling with man is the end to confusion, especially about him. I hear a lot of people reflecting upon uh, about how um, in the resurrection or in heaven, depending upon what they're talking about or what their belief system is, they're going to be reunited with their loved ones. And, and I understand that sentiment. I understand that desire. Both my parents have passed. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I could get on the phone and talk to my dad because he was full of wisdom. Okay, uh, He was blue-collar, hardworking, worked on drill rigs all his life, but, man, there was nobody I've ever met in my entire life who was more wise than my dad. And I would love to say, Dad, what do I do? To be able to call him and, and just be able to, to bounce things off of him. So I understand the desire to be reconnected with loved ones. I understand that. But let me just be clear. In heaven, in the life to come, in eternity, in the new creation, it won't be about those other people. There will be one name on our lips. There will be one thought in our minds. There will be one desire in our hearts, and that is Jesus. To connect with the God who made us, who saved us, who transformed us, who, who has granted us these truths. He will be at the center of our mind. And it, because of that, because of that connection, because of that relationship, the confusion, the questions, the doubts, the fears, all of those things will leave. Now, I don't know exactly what all we'll know. I know we won't know everything. Because if we knew everything, we'd be God. And we won't be God in heaven. We won't be God in eternity. There will always be a part of creation, a part of reality, a part of truth, a part of knowledge that is reserved for God alone. Because He's God and we're not. So there will always be a component of things that we don't know. But what we will know will far surpass anything that we understand or see or conceive of right now. It'll be beyond our... our our comprehension. It'll be something that's significant, at least to the degree that we will no longer suffer under confusion, under doubts and fears. 
will have that kind of clarity. And so the, the behold, God's dwelling place is with man, is, is a significant expression, a communication of a transformed life, a, a transformed circumstance. The second behold is spoken by Jesus himself in the passage. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. What 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 a what a what a concept. What what an expression. What does that mean? What what is that getting at? I'm making all things new. It is a recreation. It, it is a it is an expression of his power. It's an expression of his connection with us. It's an expression of of insight into what he can do that no one else can. He has no rival. His power is a power that affects us now and gives us hope now. Because we live in a world that's deteriorating. We live in a world that's fallen apart. And to consider, to stop and think about a God who is functioning and relating in such a way that he's not just going to repair things. Okay, I, I, I've had a lot of things repaired over the years, and, and quite often the repairman makes the statement, good as new. Okay, Seldom is it. <laughs> in fact, I would probably say never is it as good as new. Okay, But it'll do for now. God isn't about, quote, repairing things. He's about changing things, making them brand new. In Psalm 51, you have the prayer of David. He says, he says what? He says, create in me a new heart, a clean heart, O Lord my God. And what's interesting about that word create that's used there, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1, and there's two truths about it. Number one, God's the only one who can do it. Whenever that verb is used, God's the only one who's the subject of that verb. But number two, whenever he does it, he takes sole responsibility for what happens there. He's the only one, he's the only one who gets any credit for it. God doesn't just repair our hearts as believers. What does Paul say? We're made new creation. We are transformed. And that transformation now, that power now that's taking hold and that, that's, that's moving us and shaping us will find its completion in the resurrection when we are completely new. When we've achieved glorification is the word we use in Christian circles. When we receive that moment. But there's another way that this, this power affects us now. And that is by looking at the connections that Jesus himself makes here. There's a reason that here at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, at the end of God's revelation to us, that we are drawn back, we are traveled back to the beginning. When you look at the, the, the passage as it expressed here in chapter 21, and I encourage you to continue on reading through the rest of the chapter uh, later on today, what you see here is what? You see Eden. You see the Garden of Eden. 
You see the tree of life. You see the waters of life. You see God dwelling among his people and walking with them and talking. You see all those images that you saw back in Genesis 1 and 2 here in Revelation 21. And not only that, but you find Jesus referring to himself as what? The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. A lot of times I think as Christians, we, we, we think about Jesus as the end. We think about him and, and him bringing an end to this and an end to that and a culmination to this and a completion to that. And, and he's going to do all those things. That's, that's exactly right. There's nothing wrong with that perception and that understanding. But we also need to bring in along with it the fact that he's the beginning and that there is a connection between the two. The journey that we've been on began not with, not with Jesus being foretold, not with his birth, the beginning we began with was what? Jesus before creation itself. Why did we start there? Because to truly understand God with us and, and his relationship with us is to understand that all of it, from before the beginning to after the end, however you want to put that, that he is all those things. What happens in the end confirms what has already happened. And in confirming what has already happened, it communicates that as we live in the in-between, we still live in his power. In other words, what we're hoping to experience there, what we're hoping to enjoy there, has already been expressed in some ways back in the past. And to understand that connection and to understand even in small ways, to understand God's creative ability, his, his, his ingenuity, his creativity, all of those sorts of things, is to begin to understand that right now in this life, in this circumstance, we have hope. We witness God's power on a daily basis. We witness what he's capable of doing in our lives and in our experience. And we understand the power of that, and we can live in the power of that, by what? By looking back at what he's already done and saying, the same God who did that, who's working in my life today, but also what? Looking forward to what he's going to do in the end by saying the God who's going to do that is not going to leave me out to dry now either. He has this unfolding plan. He has this, this reality at work. And we're a part of it. We don't just live in the midst of it. We are a part of God's plan. We are a part of God's design. We have been invited to participate in this work and invited to enjoy the, the, the benefits of that, to, to reap the harvest of God's goodness and God's mercy. And this is expressed for us in, in verse 6. Right after Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he says, I'll freely give to them who are thirsty the water of life. And this image really brings home for me, and I'm sure for many of you it does as well, because I think we've all been in that place where we've been really thirsty. Maybe you've been working out in the yard or, or at your, your business or just walking or exercising or whatever, and man, you're just, I could use a drink. I could use something. I'm so dry. I'm so parched. I, I just... You know, your head's even aching, and you know, your, your whole body just feels broken. 
because you're thirsty, and someone hands you that glass of water, whether it's ice water or even just tap water, means lukewarm water, whatever it is. When you're thirsty, it doesn't matter. But you take that drink, you, you take that, and you drink it. And immediately, instantaneously, all that pain, all that 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 aching, all of that that dryness, all of that frustration that that's part of thirst, it's gone. And, and it's almost like magic. I mean, it's just boom. The water hits your mouth, and you you're, you're moved from being worried and concerned about what's going to happen to man. I'm satisfied now. That's good stuff. And God says to those of us who are struggling, to those of us who are seeking this righteousness, those of us who are seeking that spiritual fulfillment, I'm going to give you something to drink. Because I think for most of us as well, we have those times in our lives when we're spiritually thirsty as well, where nothing seems to be going right and we're just struggling, and we're frustrated, and, and we're hurting, and, and we're just, oh, I need something. And God steps in and says, here, let me give you a drink. Let me refresh you. And the image here is of ultimate refreshment. It's what? It's the waters of life. That is, it's, it's waters that continually satisfy. It's the same water that Jesus talked about in John when he's talking to the woman at the well. He who drinks from the water I give will never thirst again. Now think about that. Never have that frustration. Never have that. This is our hope. This is what God is promising here. But it's something that we can enjoy right now. When we come together to worship. When we come together to encourage one another. To, to sing God's praises. To, to hear from His Word. To, to just encounter the, the power of the Spirit in His presence with us. When we come together for all that, we get we get a taste of that refreshment. We get the restoration in little ways now that we'll feel ultimately then. He concludes this paragraph, this section with statements of judgment. And and these words are frightful should be frightful to those who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. To uh, the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It's a frightful image. It should be a frightful image if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But understand, John is writing this to the churches. John is writing this to believers. So the image is not initially intended to instill fear. That's not its initial purpose. John's not writing this to make people scared. John's writing this to encourage believers. And so as you understand that and you see that, then what do you come to see? You come to understand that justice will ultimately be carried out. And as believers, that's something we need to know, we need to understand, we need to see. Because let's be honest, we all struggle with the concept of justice. Where is it? Like Habakkuk, we ask, 
Where's the justice, God? I see the wicked prospering. Their bellies are full and their eyes are fat. Psalm 73 says. And I'm like, where's God? And we question these things and we wonder about these things. And we have doubts and fears because of these things. What John is trying to communicate here is that's not the way it's always going to be. That's not the end comment on reality. That person's prospering is not the end result of this journey. That God will set all things right. There will be justice in the end. There will be an accounting in the end. He starts with his love by communicating his grace and his goodness. But he concludes with his wrath in order to also instill in us a knowledge that he will bring all things out. To put it another way, I can deal with anything as long as I know there's an end to it. And so to understand that is to understand part of what John's drawing on here. The psalm I mentioned, Psalm 73 where he talks about the fatness of the eyes of the wicked and so forth. There's a turning point in that psalm where the psalmist says, I thought about these things, and I almost fell, collapsed, rebelled against God because of these things, until I entered the house of the Lord. And then I understood their end. And in that understanding of their end, understanding of this truth, we come to see that God is vindicated, that we have hope, and that we have a future. How does that affect us now? It grants us hope. It grants us peace. It grants us a sense of completion and finishing, but it also calls on us to be an actors of justice ourselves, to be people who engage our culture to bring as much as we can in places where we can a rightful outcome to situations and circumstances. Every one of these promises, God dwelling with man, the end of separation, the end of suffering, the end of confusion, God making all things new in His power, in His love, in His judgment. All of those are meant to right now instill in us the knowledge and the truth that we can be more than overcomers and that we've been called to bring change and transformation to our world as we what? As we reveal the God who saves. As we look at 2021 and what it may or may not hold, what it may or may not involve the injustices that we'll undoubtedly encounter, the hurts that we'll undoubtedly go through. We need to hold on to the truth that God has made us more than overcomers. And we can be more than overcomers because we know He has already overcome and He will ultimately one day completely overcome all that is.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that you'd help us to walk with justice and with love and with grace just as you relate and reveal those things. God, we pray for the coming year. We pray that it is a year when we see your power manifested in ways we can't even presently imagine. We pray that in each of our lives, you would move us to action, to sharing our faith, to communicating your goodness, to being a people who truly reveal and relate what an awesome God we serve. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name.